probably everybody here has heard a proverb. You probably even had it drilled into your, into your mind that, that isn't necessarily true. Now, I know what they mean by it, but we'll talk about it in a minute. But we, how many of you have been told there's two sides to every story? You ever heard that? Well, you know, it's true that at times we have different perspectives on something, but the reality is there's really only one truth. Even if you have different perspectives and different understandings and you see it, maybe you don't see the whole picture or whatever. But in some situations, though, no matter what you've been taught, there are not two sides. There's, say there's some lady in the emergency room who's, whose husband has just beaten the living daylights out of her and her eyes are swollen shut and her lip is split open and she's obviously a victim of spousal abuse and you hear two doctors in the hallway and one is saying, this is horrible, this man ought to go to jail. The other one might say, hey, there's two sides to every story. No, there are not two sides to the story. There is a right and there is a wrong. And sometimes someone is just a villain. Sometimes, you know, it's, he's not torn, he's not confused, he's just, he's not a good guy somewhere deep down, he's just a bad dude, like Saul in his later years. In the early relationship between David and Saul, David is a person of honor and character and integrity and loyalty, and he's, he's treating the king King Saul with, with uh, every kind of respect and honor that you could ask for. And, and if you want to say, oh, there's two sides in er to every story, I want you to know that to this story, there's not two sides to this story. Saul, David was a, a man of, of loyalty and integrity and respect, but Saul is later in his ru rule, he's a demonized, egomaniacal tyrant who's manipulative and deceitful and violent while David is this respectful young person who's just trying to do the right thing. There are not two sides to this story. There's only one truth. It's important to realize that not every story is complicated. Sometimes it just boils down to the fact that somebody is right and somebody is wrong. So here, here's this story. Let's recap where we are. We, David has killed Goliath. He, he cut his head off. And there are, there are three promises that King Saul made to whoever could kill Goliath. Uh, one, one had to do with the family of the person that killed Goliath. One had to do with the future of the person that killed Goliath. And one had to do with the marriage of the person that killed Goliath. The first promise was that his family would be free in Israel. Do you understand what being free in Israel means? We talked about one aspect of it uh, last week. The, and maybe the most exciting part of it was that it meant that, the, that his extended family would never have to pay any taxes. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> they never have to pay any taxes, nor would any family member of his be drafted uh, against his will into the army. They would, they would sort of live on an island isolated from governmental intrusion forever and ever, all of his descendants. That's a huge reward. That's a huge reward for killing Goliath. Secondly, that person uh, who killed himself, that person, uh, not killed himself, who killed Goliath. Let me get that straight. That's a big difference in the story. The person who killed Goliath uh, would also be made rich and would be uh, elevated to a position of leadership in Paul's kingdom and in his army. I mean, obviously, if you, if you win that great battle there, that, you know, you're, you're going to be elevated in the army uh, and given that great position. Third, the, and maybe most important of all, 
really in reality is that he would be given one of Saul's daughters in marriage, which would make David the son-in-law of the king. So the person that kills Goliath is going to be the son-in-law of the king, which then, being it because it's David, puts him in an ideal position in case Saul dies or steps down from the throne. Why? Because by marriage and by celebrity, David is in the place where he could compete with Saul's sons for the potential of succeeding to the throne. Because remember, there's no clear line of succession in the Israelite monarchy because Saul is the first king. They have never done this before. They've never had a king, so they've never had a king die. So what do we do? Where is the line of succession? Because there is really no precedent because Saul was chosen by God. He was not elected. He was not chosen by the people. He was, wasn't born to the throne. He was a farm boy who was plowing when God chose him and made him king. So nobody's exactly sure how the next king is going to come. Is God going to choose him too? Is it going to be the king's son, Jonathan, that takes over? So the king's son-in-law could just as easily be the next king as the king's son. Furthermore... Uh, this is going to make him, David, this victory of Goliath, it makes him the most famous warrior in all of Israel. So you have this young teenage boy. It's not exactly clear how old David is at this point, but he's, we know he's too young to serve in the army, so maybe 15 or 16 years old. And David kills this giant in front of the armies of, of Philistia and in front of the army of the Hebrews. He cuts the giant's head off and, and he causes the tide to turn of Saul's rebellion because the Israelite, uh, I mean, the Israelite army is there fighting against the oppression of the Philistines and, 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 uh, and they see what happens and the, the Philistines see this little boy, this young skinny kid take out the giant and suddenly they're like, whoa, we're in trouble. And they take off running and the Israelite soldiers chase them and they route them all the way to the city of Gath. And, and, and this rebellion that Saul is leading against the Philistines uh, is actually turned in this moment, and it's, but it's not turned by, the, by Saul, the king of Israel, but by this young man named David. And Saul watches as David becomes an overnight celebrity. I mean, overnight, pow, just like that. He, he is an overnight sensation. Everybody's talking about him. Did you hear? What happened at the battlefield? Did you hear about that, that little shepherd boy that took out the giant? Everybody hears. Now, they don't know what it looks like. Remember, they didn't have photos or things like that. But they know, everybody knows in Israel what took place. And David is this huge celebrity over, almost overnight. And then in that moment, Saul's insecurity and Saul's jealousy begins to take over. And he begins to do everything he can to get David killed. Now you can read about this. We don't have time to read all of these, these passages. Otherwise we'd spend most of our time just, just reading it. But you, I will encourage you to read it. But you'll, you'll find out that he begins to send David out on the most dangerous missions. He makes him the captain of a hundred men. That, that means you have, think about this. You have this, really this little boy, 15 or 16 years old, who is leading grizzled veterans into battle. And Saul is hoping to get him killed. He wants to be rid of him. He's glad that he killed Goliath because he was too much of a coward to do it. 
He's glad that David took him out. But now, wait a minute, David's, the people like him more than he like, they like me. And so he's wanting to get rid of him. So he's hoping to get him killed. And he sends him on, these, on the most dangerous missions. However, the problem the, the, was two things. Number one, David has a natural gift of leadership. And you combine that with the fact that the hand of God is on David. And so there are those, you know, listen, this natural gift, the gift of leadership, you know, there are those people that in any given situation that even older people will look to them and respect them and they'll listen to them. They have this natural gift of leadership, the God-given gift of leadership. I'll give you a negative historical example, uh, but it is a true example nonetheless. It's Jesse James. At the end of the Civil War, all of these grizzled veterans from the Confederate Army returned back to Missouri at the end of the war. And this young boy, Jesse, Frank's younger brother, uh, he, he's never really been in the Army, just sort of, sort of in the Army, sort of out, never really in. He's just a kid, really. And, he, and all of these Confederate veterans gather around and they form this bound of, band of outlaws that has Frank... Uh, J James in there and has Cole, Paul Younger in there and, and uh, uh, actually it's Cole Younger I think and is already uh, uh, who's, he's already an established killer and outlaw but it's Jesse that becomes the leader even though he's this young he's only 18 years old and he becomes the leader of the band they're just people like that you know, that, that when the team all kneels, you know, gathers around in the huddle on the football field, there's somebody that everybody's going to look to to hear what they say. You know, you can go into the locker room. You can go into the classroom. There's going to be somebody that everybody looks to for leadership. And David has this aura around him. For, for one thing now, remember, he's famous. So these, these grizzled veterans, one of the reasons that they're ready to follow him is because None of them cut Goliath's head off. It was this guy that did it. So maybe there's some in the, in the barracks and they say, why are we following this, this little boy? And somebody else says, well, hey, did you cut the giant's head off? Now just keep your mouth shut and let's follow him. You know, so, so Saul, Saul's strategy to get rid of David actually ended up backfiring on him. Uh, how did that happen? Well, because he kept sending him on these missions thinking, he can't survive this. He's just a kid. He can't survive this. And he, and he wins. And he comes back victorious. So he says, all right, I'm going to send him on another one. They're even more dangerous. And he sends him out. Uh, uh, and the more dangerous the mission uh, on which Saul sends David, then the greater the accomplishment when David fulfills it successfully. So it backfires on him. Saul, in an effort to get David killed, actually begins to build his fame even more. So Saul, he keeps sending David into these dangerous missions and David keeps winning. He wins over and over and over again. Now listen to me. Uh, you need to understand this, that, that those that scheme and strategize and manipulate to get what they want at the expense of other people around them, their schemes will eventually blow up in their faces. So you need to learn to wait on the Lord. See, David, he could have, he could have you know, maybe it was just because of his young naivete that that he just said, oh, you know, Saul just trusts me so much, but Saul was trying to get rid of him. But, but learn to wait on the Lord and let him fight your battles for you. And so Saul says, I I've got to get this guy killed. How can I do this? He says, first of all, I want to make him uh, sound arrogant and egotistical in front of others. And he says, send for him 
and tell him that Saul has remembered his promise. He's going to let you, let you marry his daughter. So the, so the servants of Saul go to this young warrior, David, and they say, the king has remembered what he said to you, and he's going to let you marry his daughter. Now, here, here's the thing. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that if I were David, which I am David, but not that David, um, <laughs> if, if I were in his shoes or sandals, whatever he wore, I might say, well, it's about time. It's about time. All I've done is win all of his battles. All I've done is kill all of his enemies. All, I mean, I, I'm the one that killed Goliath. I held up my end of the bargain, but, but he didn't do what he said he was going to do. It's about time. He had, he had told David he would give him his older daughter, but he's already married her off. And now there's, there's the, the one that's left is his younger daughter, Michael. And it seems like David might say, well, I, I already missed one daughter, but I'm ready. And I tell you, it's, uh, you tell the king it's about time. I'll take Michael. But instead, you know what David says? He says, me? He said, do you, you, you think I'm worthy to marry a king's daughter? He says, you go back and tell the king I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm a poor man. I don't have anything. And I, I'm lowly esteemed by everybody. Now, he's highly esteemed. But he has this real humility about him. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't, you know, looking around at the crowds and saying, I'm, you know, how many of somebody that, that uh, they were humble and they were proud of it? You know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? They put on this air to make sure everybody sees how humble they are, but the reality is most people can see right through it. Well, David, it was just this, this simplicity and this honesty and this humility that he had, this genuineness about him. Now listen, I want to I want to teach you one of the uh, really it's really the one of the dismal lessons of life. All right, you ready? Doesn't that sound real exciting? Some of you are like, "Wow, that's great, Pastor David." All right, it's important for us to learn this. Many of you have already figured this out, but if you haven't figured it out, here it is: when somebody hates you unreasonably, when they are jealous of you or envious of you, when, when for some irrational reason they hate you, the better you act, the more they will hate you. How many of you already figured that one out? I, I wish I could tell you that if you'll just do the right thing, that you can turn the hearts of your enemies. Now, that does happen at times, but, but, but that's, of course, that's not why you do the right things. You, you continue to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, whether they ever change their heart or not. But the truth is, if you continue to do the right thing, you may get yourself killed. I mean, David, all he did was he kept doing the right thing and it got worse and worse and worse. Your enemies will, will hate you because jealousy and envy and hatred have no logical foundation. So the better you act, the more jealous they are and the more they'll begin to try to knock you down because, you know, part of, listen, honestly, sometimes it's because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life because you're doing the right thing and you're living for God and you're taking the high road and, they, and that, that shines a spotlight on their life and, they, and it shows in stark contrast who a man of God or a, man, a woman of God is compared to how they're living, and that makes them so mad 
that they're going to knock you off your high horse. Your enemies hate you. If they hate you, they're going to hate you. It's like we said Sunday. Haters are going to hate. David treats Saul with dignity and with respect and with honor. And Saul says, Ooh, I hate him even more. David, in essence, says when he's approached about marrying his daughter, in essence, he says, I'm a poor man. In other words, he's saying, I don't have a dowry. So, so Saul makes a, a horrible, horrible request. I mean, it's so disgusting that we can hardly even talk about it. He, he says to David, he says, well, the, the only dowry I want is this. Now, now, here's the thing. Remember, he's trying to get David killed. He wants to get rid of him. So he says, I want you to kill and personally circumcise 100 Philistine soldiers and bring me their foreskins. I mean, that's disgusting. Let's just face it. And he thinks that in so doing and in trying to accomplish that, that certainly David is going to get killed. There's no way he's going to be able to take out 100 Philistine soldiers and, 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 and cut off the foreskins. So David says, is that all you want? He says, I'll get you 200. And he's not being arrogant. He just wants to show Saul that he's loyal and eager to do what he wants him to do. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, gung-ho. And it's the, it's, this, it's the ghoulish story where David actually goes out in the field and ambushes and kills and circumcises the dead bodies of 200 Philistine soldiers. And he brings back these bloody foreskins and throws them at King Saul's feet and says, there, I did twice what you wanted. And you'd think... With all these things and all the loyalty that David is showing and all these things that he's doing for King Saul, you would think there would come a moment when, when Saul would say, you know, I just, just, I'm just wrong about this kid. I, I mean, no matter what I ask him to do, he does it. And he even does more than I even ask. I try to trap him in his words and it doesn't work. I try to get him killed and he, and he just wins battles for me. You know, you know, this is really a good boy. I was wrong. But remember, the demonically inspired hatred and egomaniacal tyranny, it will never, ever have its hearts changed outside of an act of God. It'll never change. So, so David marries Michael. And we've already talked about some important relationships in David's life, David's life, but here's another important one. Now, ladies, I think it's important to, that, that we don't try to impo impose modern ideas about marriage on the people of Israel at the end of the Bronze Age. Uh, in those days, and I hate to tell you this, in those days, women had nothing to say about whom they married. There was no proposal. There was no ring given to them. There, your father collected a dowry from someone and looked at you and said, you marry him. If you liked it, fine. If you didn't like it, tough. You know, so Saul asked, now here's the interesting thing. Saul actually asked Michael if she'll marry David, which was already unusual. But he asked her and, and she says, she, she responds and she says, actually, I'd love to. I love him. I love David. And from that moment on, Paul considers his daughter Michael as a spy in David's bed. He feels that he now has someone that will report to him 
about David. Now, here's, here's the question I have for you. Why can you trust a spy like that? The answer is because she doesn't know she's a spy. She thinks she's talking to her loving father about her loving husband. He's getting a true and unvarnished account about David because Saul knows that when they lie in bed at night and talk to each other that David will reveal his heart to his wife. And when Saul takes his daughter to coffee the next morning at Starbucks and says, well, what's David been talking about these days? There's no reason for her to be guarded because she doesn't know what he's trying to do. So from that moment on, the entire marriage is corrupt because it leads to a divided loyalty in Michael's heart. It destroys the marriage because later on she turns to her father rather than, than David. We'll, we'll come to the death of the marriage with Michael later on, but let me just give you this. Michael, is, she's really in the story one of the most tragic figures in my mind because she becomes a, a terrible pawn in a, in a historical nightmare. A, a, a great deal of it is not her fault, but in the end, she chooses loyalty to her father over loyalty to her husband. And here's something that every, every young woman, I wish every young woman could, would learn this uh, and, and realize this before they ever get married. And here it is. You will never, ever become a queen if you can't quit being a princess. You know what I'm saying? At some point or another, you're through being daddy's little girl and you have to be your husband's wife. Now, as a daddy, I don't like that, but it's still true. It's still true. That, that central focus of male loyalty in your, in your life has to shift. It just has to shift. If, if you don't make that shift, then your marriage will never be on solid ground. And at the end of their lives together, Michael, you may not realize this, at the end of their lives together, Michael is not referred to as David's wife in Scripture. She's only referred to as Saul's daughter because she made her choice about who she was going to be loyal to, loyal in that situation. And at the end of their lives, they're not speaking to each other. They're not sleeping together. They don't have any more children. And their marriage ends in a nightmare of frozen hatred and alienation. And Michael becomes a sad and lonely person. And, 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 and when David runs out in the wilderness, which we're going to get to those days in coming weeks, Michael is shifted from by her father. Remember, the father made the decisions on these marriages, especially when you're king. You get to say whatever you want to say. And she, he, she was shifted by her father from man to man. So when David flees into the wilderness in order, in order to humiliate David, Saul takes Michael and gives her to another man. And when David finally ascends to the throne, it's a sad, horrible story. When David ascends to the throne and becomes the king in Saul's stead, the, the tribe of Benjamin throws in with David. They said, hey, we're through with the, the, the rebellion. We don't want civil war. We're, we're done with it. Saul is dead. Long live the king. We're with David. And David says to Abner, the head of, the, of the, the Benjamite army, he said, that's fine. He said, but, but before I'll take any Benjamites back into the, into the Hebrew army, before I allow you to be part of the kingdom, you go get my wife. I want my wife, Michael, back. But she has been living as the wife of a man named Paltiel for years. 
for years, David is dead to her. She's, he's been an outlaw living in caves. And now all of a sudden, David is the king. And she's happily married to another man. And Abner goes and gets Michael and says, David wants you back. Now, Paltiel, he says, you, you can't just take my wife. And Abner just ignores him and takes Michael and leads her away. And it says that Paltiel, Paltiel follows him. It's just really this horrible, pitiful story. He follows him weeping until Abner finally turns on him. And now you understand, Abner is one of the most dangerous soldiers in all of Israel. Abner and Joab, at this point in time, are the two greatest soldiers in Israel uh, outside of David himself. And Abner is a very dangerous, lethal man. And he turns to this man, and he's, he's following his wife, and he's just weeping, saying, Don't take my wife. Please don't take my wife. And Abner turns on, on Paltiel and says, Unless you go back in your house, I'm going to kill you. And Paltiel has to walk back into his house and swallow that as David takes his wife and goes away. Now, David, he's saying, she's my wife first. I never, you know, we never divorced. Saul, King Saul just gave her to you. And Paltiel saying, but you were gone. Now, now this is a complicated story. You, you can understand that this poor girl, Michael, Saul's daughter, is caught up in all this stuff. She didn't choose to go marry Paltiel. She didn't even really choose to marry David, although he was, she was asked about that. And she's caught up in all of this historical and geopolitical issues that are bigger than her. She's a tragic figure in the story of, of David and Saul. And she ends her life as a bitter old woman that despises the memory of her father and he, she hates her husband. Why? Because she was never really able to make up her mind. And we're going to talk more about some of those things but what, what we begin to see happening here in, in this situation is what, and we're going to we'll close with this idea. This, take, I mean, we're, this is not the closing. This is not the, you know, this is as somebody, a preacher I knew once, he said, as I continue to close, <laughs> you just keep going. This is not, I don't, want to, I don't want you to say, oh, well, we're almost done. No, no, we got a little, little bit ways yet, yet to go. But, uh, but I want to I end our time together talking about this idea because what I see beginning to happen in David's life, and, and I see the hand of God in it, whether you want to or not, but I see the hand of God in it. All, when all these events begin to take place, God is kicking out the crutches from underneath David. And, and I, I can see at least five different crutches, and, we're, and some of these we've started to talk about, others we're going to talk about in coming weeks. But the, first of all, David lost the crutch of a good position. I mean, he had been brought into the, into the army. He had proven himself a faithful, even a heroic soldier. And now it's all gone in the flash it, it, with a spear being thrown, which, by the way, I don't know if you realize that that happened twice. There were two times that Saul through a spirit, David. I don't know about you, but after the first one, I'd be thinking, I don't think I want to be here. But after the second time, David ran, and we'll talk about that in, in, on another study in another week. But, but, but when he took off and he, he lost that position, he's, he, will, he never again serves in Saul's army. Even though that's all he wants to do is to serve the king. But all that good position, all that, that high position that he had, He's, it's gone. That crutch is gone. He lost his wife. 
We just talked about how Michael turned her back on David eventually, and she went from loving him to eventually despising him. He, he lost Samuel uh, as a crutch to lean on. He, he fled a, uh, after this, and we'll get to this in another week. He fled to Nioth with, with uh, Samuel, but eventually David fled Nioth with, without Samuel. And so he was there, and David had to run in caves. And so Samuel has been a great counselor for David. He's been a source of strength and encouragement to him. Now that's gone. All that crutch is gone. Th- then he, he not only lost that, but he lost his best friend. Who, somebody tell me, who was David's best friend? Jonathan. One of the most moving stories in all the Bible. We'll, we'll talk about it again in another week. But when we get to that story, you'll, you'll, you're going to learn that when David realized, or excuse me, when, when Jonathan realized that David was telling the truth when he told Jonathan, your dad's trying to kill me. Because at first Jonathan said, no, if that were true, I would know it. And, and David said, Jonathan, you don't know it because your dad knows that you're my best friend. So he's not going to let you know. But he, he, he says, uh, I'm a step away from death. That's how dire the situation was. And, and when Jonathan learned the truth and realized that David was right about that, and we'll get to that story, it's a very moving, very powerful moment. But, but they come to a point where they're still best friends. They still love each other uh, uh, with, with their lives, but David has to go one way and Jonathan has to go the other way. And he lost the crutch of even having a good friend, his best friend. And then the final blow, which we'll get to again, was he lost his self-respect. Because when David fled to Gath, of all places, of all places, who was from Gath? Goliath. Goliath. A- and he flees to Gath to try to find safety and refuge. The problem is there are people there that recognize him and they say, hey, wait a minute, isn't that David? That's the guy that killed Goliath, who, you know, who was one of our heroes here in this city. And, and they knew that you could read it. They knew of the songs that they were singing in Israel about David where they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has what? Slain his ten thousands. And in order to, he realizes, I'm in mortal danger here. The king is going to kill me because they know who I am. I think he probably thought he could go in there and, and, and keep his identity a little secret or something. But somebody knew him and the word got out and, and he knew, man, if I stay here, I'm in trouble. But how do I escape now that I'm already in the city with all these uh, p- people around me? And in order to escape with his life, he had to pretend to be absolutely a lunatic and out of his mind. How humiliating. I mean, just days or weeks before, he was this powerful soldier leading regiments of men and winning great victories and, and, and great, uh, getting great fame in all of Israel. And now he has, to, he has to foam at the mouth and scratch at the door in order to get to safety. How humiliating. And all the crutches were kicked out from underneath David. Read the Psalms. You'll see the turmoil he went through. Which, by the way, is why when we get our crutches kicked out from underneath us, one of the best places to go is to read the Psalms. But you know what? We're a lot like David because it's a human nature. We, we tend not to lean on our crutches. As children, we we lean on our parents. 
In school, we lean on our teachers or our peers or even on education itself. As we head toward you know, adulthood, we, we lean on our hope for the future. When we finally reach adulthood, we lean on our job or our profession or we lean on our, on our, our spouse or we lean on our financial security and we, we think these are the things that are going to be able to prop me up and hold me up and keep me moving forward. And all of these things, there's nothing wrong with any of them. They're all good things, but they can become crutches and can have some bad effects on our lives. Because first of all, crutches can become substitutes for God. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath you are the everlasting arms. And Isaiah 41, 10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But here's the problem. As long as we lean on somebody else or something else, whether it's our spouse or a friend or our bank account or our, our, our possessions, whatever it might be, as long as we lean on somebody or something else, we cannot lean on God. So that's the first problem. Number two, second, crutches keep our, fo our focus horizontal. When you lean on another person or an another thing, your focus is always sideways. It's never vertical. You find yourself constantly looking to that other person or relying on that thing. Uh, that's why, you know, uh, a, a drug addict goes to the drug in order to try to get through that next few moments. And, and it's, it's all, you're always looking for that for the answer to help you get through the day or, or, or the... <laughs> Now I'm going to hit close to home for me. The, the food addict, you know, when, you, when things are not... Anybody here a, uh, a stress eater? Okay, there's three or four of us. We'll start a support group. But, uh, you know, we, we, we run to that. Or, or if it's a relationship, you know, when things go bad, we'll want to run to that. And, we, and we're always constantly going there. And, we, and we're looking horizontally instead of looking up to God. So, and those things... Uh, uh, keep our focus horizontal, and, and, and human crutches paralyze the walk of faith. Third thing, and this is huge, crutches only offer temporary relief. Crutches only offer temporary relief. You might feel better for a little while, but it didn't change anything. It's sort of like taking an aspirin for a broken leg. It may dull the pain, but it doesn't bring any healing. In fact, it can cause greater damage because it dulls the pain enough to where you keep moving around on it and you can make things worse. God doesn't give temporary relief. He offers a permanent solution. And here, I'm going to close with this. I want to give you two lessons for leaners, all right? This is, this is for all of us. Two lessons for leaners. First of all, there's nothing wrong with leaning if you lean ultimately and completely on the Lord. In fact, being human, you have to lean. You can't walk the life of faith alone. That's why we have Christ. That's why he gave us the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you are built to be a leaner. 
We are built to be leaners. You've, you, you've got this inner throne within your heart, and no one can occupy that throne like Jesus can occupy it. There's nothing wrong with leaning as long as you're leaning in the right place and you're leaning on the Lord instead of leaning on your own strength or your own understanding or the counsel of friends or the, or the money that's in your bank account. As long as you're leaning on the Lord, it's okay to lean. And here's lesson number two. This is a hard one. Being stripped of all substitutes, all of these crutches, being stripped of all substitutes for God is the most painful experience on earth. There's nothing more painful than being stripped of the toys of our heart. And we live in a, in a culture that's all about our toys. It's all about our stuff, all about our things. Um, and we, and it's a fearful thing for us to think, what if I lose fill in the blank? There's nothing more painful than being stripped of the toys of our heart. So the, the remedy for that is relieve yourself of them before he takes them away. Now, that doesn't mean I'm saying you, get, you have to go out and give everything away. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about releasing them in your heart. The, you know, don't, don't, don't make an idol out of, your, out of your spouse. Don't make an idol out of your children. Don't make an idol out of your position or your employment. Don't make an idol out of your possessions. But whatever God says to do, you do, and, and you leave him, you, you let him have all those things Here's the way, the way I've said it for years is that we have to learn how to live with open hands. How, you know how most of us live our lives? Like this. Fists clenched, holding on tightly. We want to hang on to the stuff we have. Oh God, I don't want to give that up. I, I've got to have, I've got to have a house with, with six bedrooms. Don't you understand God? <laughs> I'm just using that as a silly example, but you know, but God, I've, I, I love this car. I've got to have this car. God, I, 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 I can't go through life without this person. I got this, God, this, God, that. And we go through it and we, and we clench it with our fists. But the moment, the moment we say to God, Lord, you can have anything in my life except this. We have just given birth to an idol. And so we've got to learn to say, okay, God, you've put these things in my hands. I will not clutch them. I will hold them as long as you allow me to. But my hands are open. And should you say, I want that, though it may be painful, I will not fight you. Now that is way easier to say than it is to do. But that is who we want to be. That's when we become available to God, to be used by God. That's when he can do what we've been talking about in recent weeks, exceedingly more uh, above and beyond that which we can ask or even think. That's when he can do those things because now we're not relying on an idol. We're relying on him. 
We're not leaning on our things or our people around us. We're leaning on him. And, and he says, if you're leaning on me, then there's nothing that can stop us. So we've got to learn how to live with an open hand. Not clutching the things of this life. Learn how to keep Jesus on the throne of our hearts. And lean only on him. Now, I can tell you this, and we'll close with this. That does not happen overnight because you say, Lord, help me to do this. This is a lifelong process of growth in discipleship and becoming more like him and letting things go and saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling letting this thing go. So help me work on this. And, and you over a lifetime, can I tell you this? You're never more like God. You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. And over a lifetime, we give. And we give those things to him. And sometimes he says, I'm going to take this out of your hand because I need to put it in this person's hand. And we say, okay, God, I can trust you because if you put it in my hand once, you can put something else there. And so we learn to keep him on the throne. And we learn to lean on him. But it takes a lifetime. Someone, there's, I have a book even titled this, something along this line. But you know what discipleship is? It's walking the same direction, following Christ for a long time. Lord, help us. Help us to be that. Let's pray.